I mentioned uh, a few months ago an article that had been written by one of my favorite New York Times columnists, David Brooks, entitled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Uh, Provocatively titled uh, article, I'm sure. But, But he summarizes what he believes is the problem for modern families by saying this. He says, the problem is, is that we've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which helped protect the most vulnerable in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached, nuclear families, married couple and their children, which give only the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. Brooks's point is very simply to say this. You only have to go back about a century or so in our own cultural history to find out that in America, the way people thought about family has radically changed to what we have now. You know, this first occurred to me when Ginger and I started having children. And, you know, I knew what my job was, but... I was always plagued with a little bit of a latent sense of guilt every time I would walk out the door and head into the office every day. But you know, on that uh, sort of uh, episodic occasion when she would have to go out of town and I would have to fly solo taking care of the children by myself, I found out that her job was way harder than my job. And suddenly, my office started looking like a very safe place. Am I right, gentlemen? And I was sharing this with a friend of mine a number of years ago, and he made what I thought was a fascinating point. He explained that like prior to the Industrial Revolution, it would have been perfectly natural for multiple generations of women to be living under the same roof and could provide all kinds of needed support for people to take on this incredible task. In other words, the family wasn't simply made up of husband, wife, X number of children. There were generations alongside to to help, quite honestly, in this Herculean task of raising a family. But for whatever reason, our culture has drifted into something, well, something different than that. You know, and so you bring up this conversation at a dinner party, and eventually the sides are going to form, as it seems like we are just wont to do in this particular culture. On the one hand, you'll have the cultural conservative who will come to you and immediately crank up a family values discussion. Well, they'll explain the day we took prayer out of the schools was the day that uh, our culture gave up on the family or something to that effect. The more left-leaning progressives in the room will say something to the effect of, seriously, you want to go back to that oppressive patriarchal household of the past? Don't you know how abusive those systems were? No one can say what a family is anymore. A a family is any group of people who decide to call themselves a family. And so I hope you've grown accustomed to me saying that God's word is neither conservative nor progressive. He is neither Republican or Democrat. And so just for the sake of discussion, please know, though, that the generation that is coming up now probably leans to that left-handed side. Something that we should be all aware of. I heard one writer put it this way. We believe now in the self-made man, the buffered self, the isolated individual. Every man is an Adam who has molded himself from the dust, embarrassed by the belly button that speaks of his dependence. (laughs) That's a great line. 
He says, choice is the foundation of all moral action. Nearly any act is sanctified by consent, the magic word of the liberal order. He says, but the fifth commandment explodes satanic myths of self-creation by teaching that unchosen relationships have moral weight. Did you hear that? Man, that's a good line. Unchosen relationships, just by the family you were born into, God places a moral weight upon. The Ten Commandment comes along to assert the fact that family, its nature, its structure, its power, is imprinted onto the spiritual DNA of every single person. Ten Commandments are not just God's ten laws for keeping his subjects you know, under his thumb. Rather, they are our manufacturer's design of our humanity, the moral arc of the universe, we've been saying. Think of it in this way. Think of it like an ecosystem. You know, an ecosystem is a biological community of interconnected organisms. And we know over the last few years that ecologists have become very adept for sort of identifying how these uh, ecosystems can be incredibly fragile. You know, imagine that it's a corporation who discovers that there's a a bug, an insect, that's making their land development a serious problem. So they eradicate it with certain pesticides. The problem is they didn't take into account that that particular bug helped to control another pest, which was worse than the first. In other words, there's this whole chain of interdependent things that make up an ecosystem. And my premise this morning is is that the Bible teaches that legitimate authority structures, including and especially the family, are as vital to your humanity as any of the elements in the ecosystem could be. And almost every bit is fragile, by the way. And so therefore we tread on this difficult ground when we venture to talk about families. But as usual, God's word is a faithful lamp to our feet to help navigate them. So I just want to jump into three ideas this morning to unpack this. The the permanence of the family, the posture of the family, and then the power of the family. First of all, let's look at this permanence of the family idea. Because we come uh, at this point, if you haven't noticed, to a turning point in in our study. The commandments are actually arranged in a very important order. The first four commandments begin with man's relationship to God. The vertical, that is. The second six, you'll notice, deal with our horizontal relationships, man's relationship with each other. Think about Matthew 22, verse 36. Jesus says, teacher, or someone asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the first greatest commandment. And the second is like to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And did you see what Jesus just did there? (laughs) He's bringing out a fascinating feature of a Christian worldview by saying this. Love for God roots every other priority. The vertical has to precede the horizontal. This is why C.S. Lewis would go on to talk about the importance of acknowledging a a God-centered life in the Christian life if you're ever going to understand what it means to follow life as a Christian. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I will actually love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God 
And instead of God, I'll be moving into a state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Now, like I've actually quoted that a number of times, which should sound familiar to you. But what I think that we miss oftentimes is that as soon as we say that we love God, love for our neighbor has to follow invariably. There's no such thing as having a concern for God that ignores our relationship with each other. As a matter of fact, the Bible will continually be evaluating our love for God through the way and the manner of which you love other people. Deeply connected. You can even reveal how seriously you take your invisible relationship with God by how you deal with the visible, complicated nature of your relationships. Take 1 John 4, verse 20. Anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see the interconnectedness? Now, what does all this have to do with the fifth commandment? Well, I would say that you ignore the deep personality-forming power of your family to your great peril. That's what this is saying. A change in this most central element in your spiritual ecosystem has the power to throw your entire life into dysfunction. I think this is what the commandment means when it encourages us to honor so that, quote, your days may be long on the earth. Paul, by the way, picks that up and quotes it in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 3, when he describes it as the first commandment with a promise. And it's not saying, of course, that the good kids are the ones who live a long time. Rather, it's saying that when a society honors legitimate human authority, it tends to thrive. It flourishes because it's part of the manufacturer's design. <laughs> you know, I mentioned this last week, but I think it's worth saying again. Isn't it strange that this commandment finds it itself in the same list as murder and adultery? That means that a society that is encouraging the dishonoring of legitimate authority will eventually morph into something that is equally as cruel and tyrannical as a society that tolerates raping and murdering. That's what's happening to us. Look, family, I realize, can be so incredibly frustrating. And there's a powerful temptation to try to walk away from it, try to ignore it, maybe bury it deep. But what happens without realizing is that you can let those resentments live for decades. It's hard for those things to repair themselves. But here's the deal. The very structure of the Ten Commandments, by putting relationship with God first and relationship with your family second, is saying that you ignore those realities of your family of origin to your great peril. You not only threaten to, re to remove your relationship with your family, but also your apprehension of who God is. Think about it. Every, so many of you, I think, honestly, are still wrestling with the fact that you're still angry at your parents. And I get that. I've heard your stories. Lots of you are justified in that anger. I've heard your stories. But here's the thing. Please understand something. As long as hatred and resentment continue to define your relationship in that space... Don't you realize that they're still controlling you? They're still pulling the strings. <laughs> I heard the story of a minister one time who was um, involved in um, casing his neighborhood, trying to drum up some support for a vacation Bible school that their church was starting. 
And after knocking on one particular door, a man looked at him and said, I'm not sending my kid to that. My parents made me go to those things all the time and I couldn't stand it. I'll never send my kid to something like that. And the pastor made the point that as they walked away and left, they thought, wow, you're so angry at your parents that now you are, you're actually going to cause your children to potentially miss a blessing that it might experience all because you're angry. Guess what, buddy? They're still controlling you. The strings are still there. My point is that the permanence of the realities of the family means that they can be both very delightful and very, very infuriating, but they cannot be ignored. Permanence of the family. Secondly, though, I want you also to notice from this commandment the posture of the family. What is the commandment teaching? Well, you unlock this commandment, I think, by looking at that word honor. It's going to be good for you to know that the Hebrew word behind the word honor is the word kavod. That's a good one to know. Because when you literally translate, you know what it means? It means to add weight to. The Bible says that we are to give weight, heaviness to our parents. What does that mean? It means the voice of our parents need to be taken seriously. In other words, they have to be allowed to have a voice. The purest sort of breach of this command, therefore, is to write your parents off as hopeless. Every commentator, by the way, I consulted brought out a fascinating nuance here that there's a lot of wisdom in the Bible's command that it does not say for us to obey our parents, nor does it command us to be thrilled with our parents at all times. And perhaps might be ideal, but it, it's not affection for parents that drives the importance of the command. Now, small little thing. Some of you back in your mind are saying, whoa, 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 whoa. What about Ephesians 6, 1, where it does say, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What about that one? Well, the word children in Ephesians 6 actually translated better it would be little children. It's about small children. So do you see the nuance? The Bible says, for in the midst of your upbringing, for small children, simply obey your parents. Do whatever they tell you to do as long as it's not sinful. But as you grow up, there's a sense in which it would be wrong for you to obey your parents at every turn. Why? Because your parents, at their best moments, I promise you, even know that they raised you to leave them. This is the bill that we have to pay, is it not, parents? We have these children, but we didn't realize that we were raising them to go away. And it kills us at a certain point. But parent, parents sort of conveniently forget that little bitter phrase in Genesis 2, 24. We said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. The point of this, there is just as much pathology in living in such a way where you are utterly dependent on your parents' approval and relying on them for every decision you make as it is to stand in an open defiance against them. It's actually the same pathology. And so the fifth commandment says, honor them for the rest of your time as the children of your parents. We are to honor them to give them weight. I think there's a, I think there's a strange connectedness, and you know this without even th talking about it, I'm sure, between every parent and their child because every parent is themselves a child. You ever thought about that? Every parent is also a child. Your parents made an equally powerful imprint on you as much as you will on your children. Which, you know, by the way, is going to free you up one day to go ahead and admit this, this, this absolute fact. There is going to come a day, parents, where your children have to forgive you for the way you raised them. 
I don't care how good a parent you were. Full stop. That cannot not happen in a sinful world. And so what that means is how you learn to honor your parents is going to come out in how your children understand what it is to honor you. Did you follow that? The patterns that you establish between your parents and you're seeking to honor is somehow going to come out in the way I treat my children. And you know what happens? <laughs> we end up learning that by giving weight to our parents, by honoring them, it means that we will learn to honor our children. To little h, honor them. We do that by knowing them by investigating them, by, by, by maybe working hard not to lose it completely when they make the slightest mistake, by lightening our touch upon them so we don't put an impediment in our way between us enjoying their simple presence. Our children are not clay to be molded. They're not enemies to be tamed. They're not projects to be fashioned. They are people. They are subjects to be known and delighted in. So the question I think the fifth commandments asks is, is, how does that manifest itself in my parenting? One last thought before we move on to the last point. Look, when you honor your parents, by the way, you honor the God who's behind the institution. Because the reason why Christians have historically understood this command to reach beyond the family into sort of all human authoritative institutions is because it's a key element in understanding how a Christian looks at society. Because Christians have always seen the world around them through the eyes of a family. That is the family of God, of course, in the church, in, in the church of Christ. But Christians have even learned to go out into civil society and they seek to mirror on earth as it is in heaven, like we prayed just a minute ago. And so Christians are the people who see their neighbor as their brother and sister. That's a Christian thing, y'all. We look at society as a family. And so throughout the New Testament, Christians are being encouraged to be productive members of that human family, participating in how that family is created. I would actually say only Christianity can preserve that sense of service to the world around us because of the idea of family. Uh, you know, it, it turns out it was in 1884 where a Scottish minister by the name of James Wells was walking through downtown Edinburgh and he saw a small little young girl who was carrying a rather large baby with her and clearly struggling to carry him down the uh, pathway. So much so that he overheard uh, uh, some of the older gentlemen standing around the little girl if uh, she wasn't tired from carrying him. And she looked up at the elderly gentleman and she said, no, no, he is not heavy. He is my brother. The story got told for about 100 years, by the way, until the Hollies made a song of it in the 1960s, right? What was the idea behind that, though? It was that when I see each other as a family, it strengthens me to go out and serve. So the fifth commandment gives us even a way to view the world around us. That's a decidedly Christian notion. Thirdly and finally, though, I want to look at the power of family. We've seen the permanence and the posture. What is the power of family? Because let's be honest, families can be really, really hard. And I'm sure there's probably a thousand questions you've got right now. How do I love my parents when it feels like they belittle me? How do I deal with these people that they seem so uh, manipulative all the time? What are my responsibilities to care for my aging parents? A thousand questions come up. And honestly, your conscience is going to have to lead you through that as this command kind of percolates inside of you. But I do think it's important for us to remember that as we do, 
we need to remember that our parents represent God. And because they did, they laid out the ground of our reality, did they not? If they approved of me, I felt approved. And frankly, one of the things that this commandment will do is it'll help us realize that some of us are still locked into that. We get dependent in very strange ways. You know, we're driven to achieve so that we can finally show that I'm good. It's pushed us into workaholism and marital problems of all kinds of sorts. But I think we have to establish this fact that whether you had great parents or whether you had terrible parents, the only way to ultimately honor them is by acknowledging that it is your heavenly father's approval that only really matters. This is the only thing that helps you survive difficult families. No parent has ever perfectly loved their children, ever. And so every single parent comes into an adulthood feeling they have not been loved properly. Everyone. That is that nagging sense of wrongness inside of you. And that's why Jesus comes along and says that through me, you can have perfect parent love. Isn't it fascinating how Jesus, when he's praying to his father in John chapter 17, verse 22, says this. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as I love you. Do you know, in other words, have you come to learn what it's like to rejoice in your adoption into God's family? That's the question. Do you know what it's like to have your heart overwhelmed by the unconditional love and acceptance of the Father through Jesus? Is it, is it non-Presbyterian enough to ask, have you experienced that in a palpable way of the fatherhood of God? Because if you haven't, the problem is you are never going to grow up. You'll be the worst form of Peter Pan. You'll never leave your parents. And that means whether you're nine years old or 90 years old, you can still not have left your parents. If you had good parents, you'll continue for the rest of your life idolizing them and living in the pattern of their example without any question as to whether or not they might have been wrong. If you had bad parents, you're going to continue the rest of your life being bitter and weeping over the fact that you can't accept yourself because your parents didn't give you the kind of love that they should have. You cannot make it through this life without coming to this radical realization that only Christianity preaches, by the way, that your creator can be your father and can give to me a family that far even exceeds my own family. How many stories are in this room who have looked and said that when my family failed me, it was the church family that suddenly came alongside me and became in me and to me and through me what no other human family could. Isn't that amazing? You know, in the Christopher Nolan epic, uh, Interstellar, there was an ex-science engineer and pilot played by Matthew McConaughey, all right, all right, all right, who is a quiet farmer with his daughter whose name is Murph and a son whose name is Tom. And in in the setting of the movie, these devastating sandstorms have ravaged Earth's crops And the people of earth have suddenly realized that life here on earth is coming to an end unless they find some other place to live. So the only way to save the world is for McConaughey to lead astronauts 
through interstellar space travel to find a new home for Earth. Turns out, though, that McConaughey must decide, though, in the midst of the movie, whether the risk is worth it. Is he going to risk never seeing his children again in order to save the human race? Or will he stay in the midst of the devastation? Here's the problem. When you travel interstellarly, you've got to use light speed. And when you do, you mess with time. So while McConaughey is gone for just a couple of weeks in his mission, decades pass in the life of his children. As the story goes on and the mishaps happen left and right, McConaughey makes these desperate attempts during the life of his children to come and make contact with them, to watch them from a, from a whole other dimension in time, trying to contact them and tell them that he still loves them. Meanwhile, his children think that the voices behind the walls are just ghosts. But at the very end of the movie, <laughs> he eventually makes it back. But by this time, the young father now has a daughter who is many, many, many decades older than he and is lying in a hospital on her deathbed. And he approaches her and he says to her, it was me, Murph. I was your ghost. This elderly lady looks at him and croaks out. She says, I know. People didn't believe me. They thought I was doing it all by myself. But I knew who it was. No one believed me. But I knew you'd come back. McConaughey says, how did you know? And she says, because my dad promised me. And he looks at her and he says, I'm here now, Murph. I'm here. Hey, look, why does that move us when we watch scenes like that? Why does that drive us? Unless there is in the fabric of this God-created world an acknowledgement in the end that if he is not my father, I have no hope of healing. But because he is, I can make it through. That the voices inside of me are him drawing me to himself, drawing me not just between he and I, but into this, this beautiful dance of love and affection that exists between the heavenly father and his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're drawn into. It led one theologian to say, because the fifth commandment is the heavenly father's word to his son, the nation of Israel, it's ultimately about the father and his eternal son who lives as the true Israel to redeem Israel. So the fifth commandment not only assumes a certain order in society, it unveils the inner life of God. So the son honors his father, trusts his father, submits to his father, hears his father, gives weight to the words of his father, submits to his father's discipline. But that's not the end of the story. Because in the same moment, the father turns the tables to glorify the son, honor him, listen to his prayers, and please. Don't you see what he's saying? In the interplay between father and son, God calls his redeemed people up into that relationship where everyone's heard, everyone's respected, all have been given weight. In other words, you can honor your father and mother because the God of the universe in Christ has honored you. He's given weight to you. You are not vaporous in his eyes. There is a heaviness to your life that is on his heart. It's not a ghost. Here's the point. My heavenly family can actually let me understand 
My involvement in the fatherhood of God means that I can stand upon that promise in Psalm 2710 that says, though my mother and my father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Question that I'll end with this. If that were true, would that change the dynamic in your own family? Maybe just a little bit? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask that we would indeed experience it. Father, as we begin to sing that this world is your world. This is my Father's world. That maybe in that moment you would come by your Spirit and sweep over us and draw us up into an experience of sonship and daughterhood and fatherhood and family. Father, that makes the best of our families pale in significance and the worst of our families okay. Would you do that, Father, and lead us into that? We ask for it even now as we pray in your name.